My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. So, Jay, uh, what I wanted to talk to you about and uh, this for this episode to talk, to bring books in and music in, is on the issue of the underworld, the descent into the underworld specifically, not just the underworld. Uh, and I don't know why this came up. It just maybe it's because I picked up the book that I'm about to talk about, which is one of my favorites of all the ones published by inner city books here in Toronto. I've spoken about them before. Uh, just to summarize, in case someone hasn't heard the previous episodes, they they do a lot of books on, uh, well, they're, they're basically a publishing house dedicated to publishing books uh, written by Jungian analysts. And uh, one of the ones they published, now, of course, Hollis, James Hollis, who you know, I admire greatly, and we'll, we'll get to him eventually, uh, published, started publishing with that publishing house early on in his career and published some fantastic books. And then moved on to uh, more mass public publication type books. But the one that I'm going to talk about today is called The Descent to the Goddess by uh, Sylvia Brinton Pereira. And uh, she talks about one of the stories that has really fascinated me. And uh, so anything you want to jump in before I jump into this long story? Or how do you feel about the underworld? How do I feel about it? Yes. Uh, I know it when I'm there. <laughs> okay, that's great. That was a very badly articulated question I just gave you. What I meant was, how do you feel about the subject of the underworld, not how do you feel about being in there? <laughs> yeah, well, it's an important subject. Okay. Um, everyone, everyone goes there, knowingly or unknowingly, voluntarily, involuntarily. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a great topic. I feel. Well, yeah, me too. And, I, and not because a lot of people say, oh, it's dark. It's actually not because you just, I think, made a really clear distinction, which is super important. And that is that you go there voluntarily or involuntarily, right? That's going to be very important to the whole, the whole story I'm about to give, which will bring in more than just this book. So this book is about Inanna's descent into the underworld. Uh, it's an old Sumerian slash Babylonian myth, the Inanna myth. And if you look at it, so, so one of my, my loves is mythology, as you know, I'm fascinated by it, and how mythology is really charting, or our mythologies are charting how we are evolving in a conscious sense, what things are rising to consciousness that we then convert into story, a story that, you know, basically people relate to across time. So what's interesting about the Inanna story is that Inanna is an earlier version of Venus, right? And Inanna's journey really is tied uh, astronomically to the Venus story because uh, of the importance that astronomy held for for, for, humankind because you're looking at the the sky and trying to figure things out. And Venus is the one, the brightest planet, obviously, and it disappears for periods of time. But it also has a retrograde cycle, which is very precise. Now, retrogradation means that if you look up at the sky, it looks like it's going backwards. Of course, it isn't actually going backwards. It's just from a perspective on Earth. But they would have tracked that. They, were, they, they kept pretty good records of Babylonians and the Akkadians, et cetera, Sumerians. And so they, they knew that this planet was behaving in this way. And then every once in a while, it would disappear into the underworld, meaning you couldn't see it anymore. And to us, that doesn't mean much, but to a society where they're tracking these things, it, it means a lot because suddenly that, that sky, that, that planet seems to have gone underground and they don't know if it's going to come back because you don't know, right? And so they would track this very, very carefully. And by the way, the period of retrogradation for Venus is 40 days, which will explain why 40 days becomes so crucial to so many of our world mythologies slash religions slash whatever you want to uh, designate them at. All right, so Venus is this important uh, planet because it is it's called earth's twin it's very much like the earth but it's also this cycle that it has which is quite beautiful actually synodic cycle uh so inanna uh descends into the underworld why why does inanna descend into the underworld well she's actually the interesting part about this is she's not forced into the underworld she actually goes down into the underworld which is her sister's 
Eresh Gagal's domain because she feels sorry for Eresh Gagal. Why? Because the sister is in mourning because her husband has died. And I think she's pregnant. I'm pretty sure she's pregnant. So Inanna is doing this as an act of compassion and to be with a sister, to suffer with the sister. What's interesting about it, of course, is a lot of our mythologies were are pasted together uh, from different parts. And so uh, the reason that Eresh Gagal's husband died was due to the sister, actually, Inanna, who's going down. And from in the Epic of Gilgamesh, anyway, you get a sense that she precipitated the death of her husband, who is the bull of heaven, because uh, she was ticked off that Gilgamesh wouldn't sl- uh, sleep with her. So he basically got her father to send um, the bull of heaven down to have a fight with uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, which he lost. So there's kind of the thing is this guilt, is this compassion? We don't know. But in the, in the general way of, st- uh, of the story, the, the, the way that it's generally told, she goes down because she feels deep sorrow for her sister's pain. But before she goes down into the underworld, uh, she's, you know, she's dressed as a goddess. She has her jewelry and, you know, her, her um, outfit. And she has to go through seven gates. And at each gate, she must give something up, a piece of jewelry, uh, part of her clothing, until she basically descends naked. Now, the way that this is generally interpreted and on a psychological level, and I think we can all understand this, because if you equate the underworld journey to... Uh, the journey that is involved with grief uh, that often throws us into the underworld. What what is speaking to is vulnerability? How much how much that journey involves you being stripped of everything that you've armored yourself with, right? Whether it's um, you know the false constellation that you might have that things could change could come come back to a way they were before. Uh, uh, anything you're hanging on to, which is very persona based, or anything based in the idea that the world is un, is basically unchanging, just is no longer operative. And that's a really, really hard thing. But I would also say that anytime you are forced to relinquish um, a part of your ego, a part of who you think you are, that's also another another uh, underworld journey, mm-hmm. which requires the stripping away, right? So she goes down to the underworld, uh, like I said, uh, because she is feeling sorrow for her sister. And when she's there, the sister doesn't receive her in a particularly um, yeah, a welcoming way. Uh, she's actually ends up, hanging upside down for three days, uh, dead, until she is rescued and brought back up to the, to the, now this is a very old story and you can see already, I don't have to tell you how many of the motifs that are appearing in this story are going to show up in so many other stories mm-hmm. that we see religious and otherwise, right? It's recycled mythology all the way, right? But there's a reason that it's recycled mythology. It's because it matters, because it's speaking to uh, an archetypal situation, which we all experience. So Sylvia Brinton Pereira, subtitled this book, A Way of Initiation for Women. And I'm, I don't think it's only a way of initiation for women. I think it's a way of initiation uh, of a journey that the feminine takes, which belongs to all of us. But she specifically, because she was speaking about some of her analysis and some of the experiences um, that they brought to the table, then she, she, she published it more for that. But I do think when I'm reading this, this is the fundamental experience of the feminine, which isn't an active principle. It's receptive. It is driven by a more relational orientation. Therefore, you do go into the underworld because you do have to be silent. It's not about, uh, it's not about going forward into the world and, and um, you know, um, laying down tracks. It's more about being able to receive and sit and be with people, which is very hard and certainly not something that is, that is um, uh, uh, encouraged, shall we say. And I, I, the reason this book, well, beyond the fact that it's just brilliant in, in the way she analyzes it, uh, uh, how how it what it means how many of the other references she brings in from the eastern uh, references to uh, the Bhagavad Gita to just how she brings it all together it's it's very beautiful but I was thinking in relationship to what this story becomes also which is in the Greek world now we're getting into a much more masculine world right um, the the story get converts into an abduction story it's no longer that Inanna um, is going down out of compassion. Now we have the story of very central and important story of Demeter and Persephone. In the case of Persephone, she's abducted into the underworld, right? And on, on, because, because, you know, Hades wants her there, Pluto, you know, whatever name, uh, Pluto being obviously the Roman name. Anyway, so she's abducted into the, in in the underworld forcefully, right? And is only allowed to come back uh, for six months because once Demeter, the mother, creates so much she creates such a ruckus that eventually 
she's allowed to come back up, but then of course she ingests the seeds, the pomegranate seeds, which is really speaking to how once you've been in the underworld as an archetypal story, once you've been in that period of grief, you don't come back uh, as the same person. You come back having ingested the six uh, seeds, which means you're forever transformed and you can't go back to who you were before. But what's interesting is what happened in these two stories, between these two very, very similar stories where you get uh, from a descent in a much more, I think, matriarchal type of situation where you're going through um, a descent because you're doing it out of compassion to you're being abducted violently. And by the way, the other Greek story we know that is an abduction is Helen of Troy. But what's interesting about that one is I'm never get quite the, I, I don't get the sense with Helen that she's objecting too much to be taken no. away by Paris. Yeah. So it's a bit of a different, maybe it's because it is earlier. I don't know. I don't know how the story, because, you know, we don't know, we can't track them. They're not linearly or sequentially trackable. I don't think perfectly, but it is interesting that at some point, the big story of, of the, the classical Greeks, the Greeks is the story of abduction that becomes that you have no choice. You're suddenly being abducted against your will, which kind of speaks to something had already changed in the psyche. And because Basil and Brenda Pereira really speaks to the Inanna story as being the feminine journey, the feminine gets abducted in the Greek, in the Greek world um, in two different ways. And of course, very violently in the case of Persephone. And so you could argue that something changed in the consciousness, right? Where you had a movement towards a more active principle, which means the feminine is going to be injured. Um, abducted, taken away. And when that happens, you you have, you know, uh, Greek culture was extremely focused on the masculine, whether it's, uh, you know, venturing forth <laughs> to conquer lands or, you know, what, what was what was what was held important were the values that are much more masculine, active values. Yeah. You're saying that the earlier version, the Sumerian version um, is more active because no, it's because it's voluntary. I, I don't know. Um, oh, well, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yes. Okay. It could be active because she's making the decision. I'm saying the active principle in the sense of uh, energy put forth, like the okay. stories are towards what do we conquer? Right. Um, okay. How do we achieve? I see. Uh, what lands do we overrun? It's not, it's not the story of how do we sit? How right. do we sit right. with somebody, you know? Right. And so I think those two stories belong to every human being. I don't think they mm -hmm. just belong to women, but they're very different, right? But by the time the, the Greeks come around, the, 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 the willingness to sit no longer happens. It's an abduction of that principle. And that seems to me to be a very different or a new take on, on this old story, the older story. And so the way I, I like how Pereira goes back, but to Pereira goes back to track why this is a necessary story for women. And why actually, I, I'm going to ex extend it for the feminine in all of us, in that I think in the kind of culture we live, and Jungians point this out, so this is not, you know, something new, the answer to everything is get going, pick yourself up, pick up, you know, pick mm -hmm. up your socks. No, it doesn't matter what happens to you. You're supposed to get back up and get going again. You don't even mm -hmm. allow mourning to happen, right? If, if someone dies, you, well, you know, have, have a couple of days off and then get back to work. It's, it's insane, according to more traditional cultures, which recognize that there is a period, possibly in the 40 days, where you need to retreat, retrograde, go back, so that you're no longer, uh, so that you're able to reflect or absorb what's happened to you. And so, the, so and, and, you know, as you said before, underworld journeys are happening all the time. Uh, some are much more, let's say, much, much harsher. You know, the breakup of a marriage, uh, there's sort of the death of any close member of a family. You know, there's so many variations on the theme. But the fact is that the idea that you pick yourself up and you get back into the world and you act like, okay, I've had my two days, move on, is would be, I think, an affront to this goddess journey. <laughs> the idea that you do have to spend some time and, and you are fundamentally changed. You just don't get back up and, and go back to the world as if the same person that went underground is coming back up and it's the same thing and happiness cannot be put on our face. It, it, it's, 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 it's insulting to how deep this story is and how necessary. So, so I don't think it's a, a, just a story for women. First of all, that's really important. It is a story about that part of us that needs that um, reflection and the reflection is not overnight.
let you talk. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> After I've gone on, yes, you, you can talk now. <laughs> uh, oh, I really have <laughs> nothing to say. <laughs> nothing to say. Well, let's talk about the involuntary and the voluntary, okay? Because I think okay. that's really Okay, the way I look at it is involuntarily, you're taken by grief, you're taken by change that you have no control over, right? Right. That's right. an involuntary descent. Can you think of ways that we volunteer? I can think of some ways. I'm going to let you talk for, for a minute. Do you think of voluntarily how we can do the underworld journey, which is, let's face it, a preparation for the involuntary uh, moments in life? So can you think of some mm -hmm. ways that you would take that journey? Or the first thing that comes to mind, the first, the first, and I'm, I'm not saying this is what everyone should do. I'm just saying the first thing that comes to my mind is a psychoanalysis. I, I think, I think anything where you're dealing where you're, this also reminds me of conscious individuation, anything where you are. You know, in a sense, we we go on a descent every night. Yes, that's so true. Yeah, in our dreams. Um, yeah. So you know, again, so I'm coming up with some of the same things we usually talk about. But you've talked about your creative process, where you, I mean, you are in some ways submerged into the underworld in some mm -hmm. ways, where you yeah. have all these images and stories and and things, and you're just swimming around down there. So the ego, the, the attitude of the ego has to be open for that to happen. And that's one reason why it happens when we're asleep, because the ego is no longer active at that point. So uh, at least not in the same degree it is in, in daytime, but I would say psychoanalysis, analysis, dream work, active imagination, uh, you know, creative work, the, these would be uh, conscious or uh, voluntary ways of entering the underworld. Right. And there's a danger there, by the way. I mean, I think we should make that clear that a lot of people experience this, for example, during retreats, um, spiritual retreats, or they're doing intense meditation. A lot comes out. So it's not like you going voluntarily necessarily will preclude you from having an experience that's quite tough. Mm. In fact, the opposite sometimes, actually. Uh, even a creative experience can be quite tough. It can be mm -hmm. overwhelming. It has been for me in the past where you're taking... Yeah, it's, it's quite wonderful. Everything is swimming and you have all these ideas, but sometimes it's too much. There's an overwhelming um, kind of feeling where you can't really control the, the flow and you just want it to stop for a little while it, and you can't. It's, in right? it's interesting that you, you linked spirituality to the underworld. And I think that's what often missed. What's, what's often missed is uh, uh, I think whenever I hear spirituality often, or when I hear people talk of it, there's no underworld aspect of it. It's, you know, your astral projecting through, <laughs> uh, through the cosmos, you know, right. but I, I, I don't think we can have a spiritual experience without, with right. the underworld. Okay. Well, that's, um, not, that's interesting. <laughs> that's the difference I would think between, because I'm just reading a lot about Gnosticism lately, and it would be the difference, I think, between the mystical side of whatever the expression is, spirituality, and a more rigidly religious, uh, structured, I don't consider them the same things. I know probably you don't either. Mm -hmm. So what I'm talking about more is the mystical, the idea that you're going inwardly yeah. without right. mediation, without people telling you how, you know, right. uh, this is how you practice. I mean, maybe we'll give him practices, but at the end of the day, you're on your own, right? Right. Um, different experience from the way that we're, it's been packaged over you know, the last couple of thousand years and probably more in that you are directed, you're guided, you're, and that can work as well too. I mean, I'm not saying that it, it, it can't, but I'm thinking of more raw experience where you, you go deep. Uh, and when you do, it's a little bit like what people describe psychedelic experiences are like that mm -hmm. you lose your boundaries. Right. And when you lose your boundaries, that's really not, it can be a very unsafe feeling for a while anyway, and that you're not, you're not grounded on, on, on anything. You're not, uh, you're not secure um, in, in a way that you generally like to be, you know? Um, so yes, this is where I, I see the spiritual experiences being that, but I don't think that it's, it, it is definitely a path that I see more along the mystical side of things yes, as opposed to what we generally associate with spirituality, which is much more guided. Uh, but I mean, it's the same thing, right? I mean, active imagination, psychoanalysis, all of these are taking us to the same place. The mm -hmm. parts of ourself where the ego no longer functions in its usual way, which, you know, protects uh, like those, the, the way that Inanna has to disrobe in a psychoanalytical experience, you have to do the same thing, right? Because stuff is coming out in your dreams that you don't particularly feel comfortable about. 
which is, by the way, by uh, because I'm part of a dream group, it makes it so interesting in, in that scenario because people don't really want to. Sometimes a dream is revealing things to you that the group can see very clearly, the other can see right. very clearly, but you're not quite ready to accept yet. So even when you hear it, it's, oh, you know. And so the only way that it can really work, and this is what I found in both psychoanalysis and dream work, that within a group is you've got to, you've got to get there yourself, guided by the questions that are asked of you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you keep asking, and then you overhear yourself, then boom, right? You know, this is a other thing, and I've told you the story about how I used to go on uh, these trips to the Southwest by myself. Like, I had a trip that was a descent. Right. Uh, so it's interesting the ways that this can happen to us. Like, it can, it can, you know, it was a matter of not only physical discomfort, but, but I, I guess psychically, it wasn't comfortable either. Right. And but, but there is something that comes out of it. And, and so it's it's funny throughout the life process how we run into different ways that the descent can happen. Right. Um, well, you you weren't looking for that particular experience. It just happened because you went on pilgrimage. Which, by the way, in the old days, that's why people pilgrimaged in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, they pilgrimaged to get to Jerusalem or to get to Santiago de Compostela or whatever. But the idea is what happens on the journey, right? Well, the the thing is, is I did set an intention two weeks before I went. So I, there was a part of me that was consciously asking, you know, consciously asking. I did not know that I was going to get there through suffering, though. I didn't know that suffering was right. what was required for me to see what I saw, for me right. to for me to receive whatever revelation came. Right. So, you know. If you're if you're gonna have intention, you have to be prepared for. Uh, I was out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you should say that. I made up a book title, uh, the name of a book I want to read, but I I cannot write. Uh, that my professor Carolina in my latest novel, Invocation, uh, she is a professor who is at a debate, and they mentioned the name of her nonfiction book, and the name of the nonfiction book is, um, uh, from redemption, uh, from suffering to redemption, Aeschylus to Joyce, right? And I thought in every story that matters, that's what happens. The redemption happens to great suffering. I mean, it's right in Aeschylus. It's the whole point of the Oristaya, but it keeps being repeated. And when I think of the great descent story, of course, everybody uh, would think of Dante's descent into hell mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and then the climb back up because you don't. So mm-hmm. the, the story is being retold over and over again, which is why. And, and, you know, some tell it better, like Dante obviously is a great poet, so he'll tell a better story in that, in that sense. But if it's being told over and over again, it's because there is some archetypal reason mm-hmm. that you need to tell the story and remind people. And, you know, today you can talk about Breaking Bad and Walter White going down and he's had, he never really came back up. In the no, way he, never <laughs> he never did. He never He certainly made the descent, right? And, yes. and you know, and, and in his case, again, I mean, you can see the setup and, and what you hope is that you descend and you come back up but there's no guarantee of it. And so what yeah. happened to you is you didn't have the guarantee. You, you came back up, thank God, right? Right. But this is where she points out in her book brilliantly again, that there is no guarantee. So that if someone's playing around with a descent in a, in a kind of volitional way, I'm going to now do, you know, 40 days of intense meditation in the desert. Yeah, be prepared because, right. you know, this isn't, this isn't a joke. You're not going to go there no. and, come back and, and be realized. <laughs> you may actually <laughs> never come back, right? So, right. Uh, or, or, you know, metaphorically, again, you may never come back in a psych- psychic way, in a psychological way. You may be damaged from that. So on the one hand, you have to make their descent so that life you should make, I think, because we're, you know, we're constantly trying to bring parts of ourselves into the conversation that are in exile. And one way to do it is to do it in this way. And there are the stories that will guide you as to how to do it, but nobody will guarantee you that this is going to work out well. You know, an, an example, I was telling you about this earlier today or uh, sent you a message, uh, right. an example, an example of someone that doesn't make it back. A great example would be uh, Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd, who was actually the founder of Pink Floyd who he, he indulged in psychedelics, overused, overused, had probably had a propensity towards schizophrenia. Right. And by the late 60s, the band uh, could no longer hold him. Like uh, he was becoming too erratic and irrational. And that basically became what I think the common experience that the band had that, that gelled them. And 
uh, th- so they went on a descent with him. He was mm-hmm. like, in a way, you could look at it as, you know, it, it sounds kind of like they're um, like Sid. Un- unfortunately, was uh, archetypally for the group was like the shaman. And he led them there. And that's what, that's where all their great music came from was they mourned that loss together. And it was a painful loss because it wasn't like, you know, uh, they saw him deteriorate over the course of years to where they didn't even recognize him. And, and so that would be an example of someone that doesn't come back. What happened to him in the end? I, you know what, he, he ended up recording a few things, I believe. I don't know, I don't know really the end of his story, but I do think that he came back to record some of mm-hmm. his own music, okay. but I don't know, I don't think it ended well. Uh, okay. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know the end of his story, I honestly don't. I'm not some great uh, Pink Floyd historian, but I know enough yeah. about the basic story, but yeah, so, what you music- know, the whole, yeah. no, go ahead. No, I was just wondering, uh, I did, uh, sort of dropped, I was just wondering what, you said that a lot of the Pink Floyd music is there a particular album you would tell people to listen to that would speak to that experience. Or I would say the, the Wall for sure. Mm. I would say a lot of their work does post, post, you know, from the from Dark Side of the Moon on. But the Wall, you know, they made a whole film around that album right. and that that syncs with the music and uh, uh, the main character is based on Sid Barrett. Basically. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that is a suffer. It was a common suffering that the band had that, you know, inspired, you know, inspired sounds like a weird word whenever it's, you know, grounded in something so, so tragic. But that is essentially, I think we're, and they'll say that that is, a lot of people tag them as a drug, you know, that they were doing psychedelics a lot, and they will deny that. I'm not saying they're lying. Uh, It's hard for me to imagine a a band that was formed in the late 60s to 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 do it, yeah. To not to do it, but they credit that experience of watching their friend dissolve into uh, right. psychosis mm-hmm. as the main impetus for their best work. Yeah, right. That's well. I mean, it would make sense, right? It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty, pretty. It's pretty powerful. Right. Interesting. Can you think of any other um, uh, albums, artists that were similarly um, affected by I, that in Dwolf? Uh, I would say Disintegration by is a is a um, album by The Cure, one of my favorite right. bands. Okay. Uh, another UK band. You'll, I mean, a lot of yeah, the I know people them. I love. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of the people from the UK are my right. favorites. Uh, but uh, a song in particular. From Disintegration is a great album and and uh, uh, probably arguably their best work, uh, but there is a particular song on there called "Prayers for Rain," and in mm-hmm. that title itself, nice. uh, because that's where you are. Uh, in the the lyrics of that song, I'm not going to be able to ra- ramble off lyrics, but uh, that song in particular. The other one is and and gosh, she is uh, another UK artist and and um, uh, she has uh, I would call her an artist that um that writes songs uh because she she you just get the sense from her that she's been through a lot of descents and that would be pj harvey right and she has a a song called send his love to me which is um uh very much yes very intense it's very very intense yes uh those those are a couple of songs that were off off the top of my head that I, I went to immediately whenever right. I started thinking about. Now, I'm uh, going to ask, I'm going to ask you a question because it just came up with my son. Will was talking about this. He just discovered Alanis Morissette and he really likes it. Oh, he, really yeah. likes, he only likes that first album. You know, yes. the yeah. Pill. Yeah. And I think that sounds to me, even though she was young, she saw that yes. sounds like a descent album because one of the yes. things that's interesting about a lot of female artists is that they take failed relationships and turn them into mm-hmm. some pretty intense music. And when I think, mm-hmm of that particular album. I think of 
that's a descent, but through the relationship side, uh, which sometimes may not be honored. Like I'm thinking right now, there's a lot in the news. I mean, I don't really follow popular news, uh, popular music so much, but about Shakira's new work, which is all about getting back or trying to process the very public divorce from Piquet. And, you know, people are, are they get on, they get on Facebook and they start kind of having these weird conversations. And I find actually the conversations more interesting than the music because I, you know, I'm not really particularly, mm-hmm. I don't listen to a lot of pop music about how they take sides and the men jump on. And well, of yeah. course, of course, her husband left her for a younger woman and but crazy stuff. And I think, wow, it's almost like channeling, you know, you're channeling what's in there uh, through music. So people can have these conversations. And of course, today we have a medium social media, which allows people to hop on and have all sorts of public conversations that maybe you couldn't have access in the sixties. You didn't for sure, which, which really brings to light that are the, are they just channeling, not just, but isn't that part of the thing that you're channeling that underworld journey for others. And that's what art mm-hmm. has always done. Yeah. Then, but, uh, yeah. Uh, you're familiar with Beck, right? Isn't he Canadian? Oh God, everyone, isn't everybody a Canadian? <laughs> That's what we Canadians <laughs> yeah. like to think. Certainly Alanis Morissette is. I could um, be wrong about that. I don't know. I don't remember. Like, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Then he probably isn't. You know, um, we always like to say, be you know, what every Canadian will tell you is Leonard Cohen is definitely yes. Canadian. They yeah. get very upset if that's not recognized. <laughs> anyway. See, Sea yeah, change, yeah. change came out. He had an album called Sea right. Change in 03 that was uh, about his breakup. Pretty much. I mean, you know, there's actually something called breakup albums. Uh, right. um, and that was definitely a breakup album for him. But it was so rich. But it was, you know, his breakup with Winona Ryder, I believe. And um, very definitely has that descent quality to it. Right. Right. Well, I, I would think that that is one of the archetypal situations. Grief is another one, uh, obviously for, okay, grief is tied to obviously the loss of a relationship, yes. but I'm thinking the death of the physical death of yes. somebody in your life. But, you know, the reason so much is written around breakups is that that is one of the things that most affects us. So of course, you know, and the way right. it's channeled, you'll, you'll probably be partial to whatever your view of your faith, whatever emotion was channeled during that time. If you find an artist that can represent that for you, then it becomes extremely powerful in any way you look at it. Right. Um, but of course there are other types of descents. And I was just thinking um, beyond of, of things to in books. I mean, that's all over every story that could, that, that that's powerful. It usually involves at least one good descent, <laughs> you know, the, go right back to uh, the Odyssey and uh, Odysseus going underground, Aeneas going. I mean, there's always a point where they have to go underground or under, into the underworld and confront some reality that they're not maybe quite ready to confront, but they have to anyway. Well, I, I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> Is it possible to reject a descent? Huh. Is, it pos- Is it possible to deny ourselves that experience? I think consciously you can try, but the unconscious is going to find you. There's just no way you're going to be able to. Because first of all, you're well, human. Well, so. I'm thinking about relationships in the first place. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, what? one thing you'll see a lot of times, especially with, with younger people is, you know, they're hurt and it's obviously hurt, but what they do instead of going into the feminine, they go into the masculine say, well, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to oh. find an even, even, you know, prettier girl or, uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, gonna, you know, I'll show her and, and, right, and right. but that and, and that may go on and on. Mm, yeah. But but, you know, that descent, I guess, as you're saying, is happening in the it's happening. Oh, unconsciously yeah. And because and, and so that is you're going to that's going to bite you on the rear. Oh, yeah. I don't um, think you can avoid point. it. I think right. you think you can avoid it. I, I think the other way that people avoid it is just by not having any more relationships. That's it. Divorce. That's over. You see that a lot with women, you know, that I know, and men probably too, where they just say that was too hard and I'm not going to get seriously involved around mm-hmm. quotes with anybody again. So you can deny it. I mean, you can, you can find your ways around it. Honestly, I think a lot of people deny their creativity because they, the part, part of them understands that part of what you face when you're doing anything creatively is you're going to face every doubt that's ever been put in your head by every teacher, everybody, every peer member every whatever that's been put in there so you have to really face your own doubts right as you go into that and i think a lot of people create all sorts of stories as to you know they want to write a book they want to uh, sing a song or create a song but they don't do it because the very act of doing it will bring up the demons that you encounter there and that's where i can see that something that is we all consider positive like the creative journey 
keeps people from doing it. It's the same op- operating principle that you understand that it's going to require you having to um, face parts of yourself that are that are not. Uh, and and by the way, the descent can also be a very bad writer's block. <laughs> you know, yeah. when you're trying to be creative, or and you just and and what happens generally there is a lot of people. Uh, try to find a way through action, as you say, instead of saying, well, maybe I need to sit with this for the 40 days. Maybe I need to go to a workshop. Yeah, that's what they do. They go to a workshop (laughs) (laughs) or they join a writer's group. And it's like, yeah, you could. And look, and I'm sure it works for some people. So let me not say that these aren't good. But I I would think that the myth points to maybe you just need a period of time in the underworld, meaning a period of time when you're connecting inside to parts of yourself that maybe need a voice. And you're just trying to push them down, right? And so that might be even better just for your whole psyche. But the fact is, it's a lot harder. So if you get active and you're kind of wired to do everything, just get going, do it. Do, you know, if, think about all the slogans we have out there. It's just do it, just just get it done. Well, that doesn't, nobody ever says just sit, right? Just just be, just, I mean, there are, of course, in meditation circles, that is one of the things you hear. But in the general culture, you are what you produce. And so if you're not producing anything, you are fundamentally a failure on some level. And so, of course, it gets people anxious. And then why bother? I mean, just, you know, let's just avoid the whole. So that's a form of avoidance, just like you would do for relationships. Uh, you would, you would, you could, you can almost see that applying in so many areas in life where you check out, you go, no, it's, it's the, what the sacrifice. And here's the clothing part of the Anana descent. I, I, do, I don't want to sacrifice the necklace. <laughs> I'm not doing that. It protects me. I'm just going to go around. And then you hear that same person lament that they don't have time to be creative, that they don't have. And I think, no, maybe you just don't want to give up the, 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 uh, the, the piece, of, piece of clothing that you might need to do, which is sacrifice, right? Maybe you don't want to give up the security of a, of a job that even though you hate gives you security. Maybe you don't. I mean, there are trade-offs we're always having, right? Uh, but anyway, the underworld journey, I think, I mean, of course, we're talking now about many places, many things that could apply to it. But the way I, I really think she talks about it and the way that I see it are those journeys that really fundamentally transform you. They are so potent that, you know, for a good or ill, when you come out of them, you are no longer who you were. And sometimes you can't get back to who you were. Well, you can't really ever get back, but you can't even get back to a state of normalcy, a, a state of being all, all right with the world, right? And mm-hmm. so this is why I think this book is so powerful. I would recommend people read it and, of course, listen to, to music or whatever that does represent that journey. And then it gets you comfortable with the idea that this is going to happen at some point in your life. And not only will it happen, it's going to happen continuously because there's a one journey. There are many journeys, right? Uh, Venus goes retrograde, you know, I don't know, three times a year. Maybe not three, three times in two years. Anyway, it goes by. It has a, re- a regular retrograde cycle. In which you could say, well, that is the idea of turn inward at this for this point, and maybe that is why all um, religious systems, religious philosophies, chose that particular length of time because there is an understanding that you need that period to be able to just, you know, <laughs> just not act, maybe just be for a while while you what while you integrate because that's another good, great word for that while you integrate whatever you've you've had to learn, you know, during that period. So. So yeah, can you think of any other music that uh, that allows? You said P.J. Harvey. You said the um, you said the Wall uh, by by um, uh, Pink Floyd. I'm sorry. What was the song by P.J. Harvey again? Send uh, send him send his love to me. Yeah, I will. I will definitely link that song because that's an intense song. And, and, the, and the cure the cure song was Prayers for Rain. Prayers for Rain. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll put I'll put them afterwards because, of course, we can't play any of this music <laughs> because you're not allowed right. to. But I will I will direct it back. I'm not sure any. I, I would say that uh, beyond the Sylvia Brinton Pereira book, I would say that there are so many myths that you can read. You don't even have to go to to. Uh, and there's so many. Uh, it's like I said, we talked about uh, Breaking Bad. It's in so many of our stories. I think my my son keeps making me want to watch or or, or saying I should watch. Um, the kind of sequel, not the sequel, but the related one, which which is it about Better Call Saul? Better Call Saul. He thinks that's even a better uh the story that I think it's pretty good. This. Yeah. It's so maybe good. so these are the stories that are out there for a reason, right? That everybody wants mm-hmm. to uh yeah. So and I can't complain cause the sun turns the moon into gold.
Okay. Well, here's here, that's our next recommendation. Well, we can't we can't forget yeah. the Christian story either. What Christian story? Oh, the descent in the actual. <laughs> <laughs> what Christian story? <laughs> you can see I'm totally not wired. Really? There's a Christian story? <laughs> so many years being a Roman Catholic, years and years and years ago. What was that about? Yes, of course. But don't you think that that story reminds you very much of the archetypal story that we've just talked about in a different that, form? It's the same that, thing, that's, right? That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. That's, right. that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, I just would have you know, it was we're talking about all these stories and here I am, you know, living in Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> that's the biggest story of them all here. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, so, so this is a good question. What do you think? Like, I, I know these are tough conversations to have because we have the literalists and we have the not, I'm a, an allegorical thinker, so are you. But there are literal thinkers that were, will take everything that's in the Bible or take in any story and say this happened. And it happened exactly the same way it said it happened. And even though there's contradictory accounts within one book called the Bible, we will take each part and, and this story is, is set in stone. So what would happen if you correlated, you said, listen, you know, this descent story actually was already around uh, with the Sumerians. It involved uh, a different type of descent, but it's fundamentally the same descent. And hey, even even better, this seems to be linked to a retrograde cycle of a planet that was very important to the to the ancients. What do you think the reaction would be in that in that case? Would it be well received? Will it be like, are you crazy? What what, what would happen in that case? I hate that you asked me this question. Well, we don't have to answer. <laughs> I'm just I'm wondering, right? Because I I don't I I I don't. That is difficult for me to answer. I I, I don't think it would be well received. Right. Right. Well, the reason I ask this is we have a little section that we've introduced about what are you reading now? And I'm reading a lot by um, uh, on the issue of the Gnostics, right? Because the Gnostics were, I think, mm -hmm. a lot of Jung, Jung's ideas definitely come mm -hmm. from Plotinus, from one of the people that had a very mystical uh, approach and allegorical and metaphorical approach to the Christian story. But of course, once I get to the Christian story was co-opted by the powers that be. With mm -hmm. Constantine and then et cetera, then it lost all of its all of its allegorical power, which by the way is really significantly powerful. I mean, it is so powerful when you read it allegorically. And so a lot of what uh, what I'm reading about because it's going to go into my next novel is just how the interpretation on an allegorical level can take you to a Jungian worldview. And the when I say that it can take you to the idea that there is a conversation always happening between the ego and the self and that it's in service to expanding the self and that we're all connected. And mm -hmm. so that it's in all of our interests to expand that story. And therefore any work of consciousness, we do any descent that we make and we bring back conscious awareness actually helps the story. And here's what the Gnostics thought that if we don't all do this, nothing can be really healed. So we're out of luck because nobody's going to not all do this, but the, the, the split between the allegorical and, and the literal is so, um, What's the word I'm looking for? I'm not even sure I have a word. It's so just so, um, yeah, yeah, it's like you can't bridge it. There's no way to bridge those two worlds, right? Because if you think something literally happened, then you're going to build dogma around it and you are not going to. Whereas the allegorical interpretation, and this is why I appreciate fairy tales and myths, there are many interpretations. Nobody has one right interpretation. The reason they're there is because there is an understanding that in conversation we can enlarge the story through the vehicle of that particular myth, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I asked. And I only brought it up because you said you're in Oklahoma, by the way. So, and you mentioned it. I would have asked otherwise, but it, it doesn't treat me. No, it, I, I think saying that it's saying it wouldn't be received well. I mean, I think that would be the initial response. I think, I think it would probably cause some to recoil. Maybe not everyone, but, you know, I, I think that sometimes uh, things like that take time. Uh, you know, they go, they go into the unconscious and, uh, and they, they flower when they need to, it, it may not be on the timeline we'd like it to be, but, um, you know, so, uh, I, I think this happens. Matter of fact, I have a friend that a good friend that went through seminary and he saw this happen before his very own eyes by a student in the seminary. So, you know, he basically stood up and said, so <laughs> to the professor, so you're telling me these are just stories, you know, like, like that somehow diminished, you know, that diminished the value or it, it, um, 
um, you know, uh, impoverished it all. So my view is that it actually enhances the value. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and the book I would recommend, since I wasn't thinking of recommending it, but that's how the conversation went, is The Pagan Christ by Tim Harper. And Tim Harper, H-A-R-P-U-R, um, or Tom Harper, sorry. He was uh, uh, taught at the University of Toronto, I think, at, in their theology department, but also wrote, I think I've mentioned before, also wrote a uh, sort of like a Sunday column for the Toronto Star. And he wrote this very powerful book about his coming to understand to understand that this was an allegorical story. But I've mentioned this before, which is why I get people to read the actual book as he kind of unwinds his or develops his argument, is that it made him a stronger believer because he understood that the archetypal is actually maybe more powerful than the literal reading because it includes mm-hmm. so much. And and he actually you know, ended up with a stronger belief, but in a different way, not in the literal I, Christ. But I, I think I think where sometimes people get caught up because there are, you know, I, I don't I don't tend to look at the biblical text as uh, you know a, a document of history. I see it as a gosh, I, I, you could call it uh, in a way a, a form of historical fiction. In that, uh, maybe historical fiction is the right word if I were going to put a genre on it, um, there are allusions to actual things that happen within the text. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens sometimes is because there are, there are um, allusions to actual people, to actual things that happen, well, then that must mean that I have to read it all at that level right. that, that, um, you know, uh, it's, it has to be literal because right. there's this literal component to it, which talks about actual geographical places that talks about actual rulers. And I would say that your point, your point about historical fiction, I once did a reading after my second book was published with a wonderful writer, Canadian writer called Wayson Choi, who's since passed away. And he uh, started his talk by saying that the thing about fiction is that uh, uh, history is fact, but history, uh, fiction is truth. What he was yes. trying to argue is that the same, I thought it was always just Joseph Campbell, but I think he took it from someone, Arrhenius, or, or no, it wasn't Arrhenius, some, some older thinker with a, with a word with a starts with S, but I can't remember the name. Anyway, the idea that myth is something that never was, but always is. The idea mm-hmm. that these stories are powerful precisely because they never were, <laughs> but they're right. always happening at the same time. And so the fiction actually can take you to a deeper truth by virtue of taking you outside of whatever construct. Because even like, I'm, look, I've been trained in history. History is a story, a narrative that you impose mm-hmm. on the past. You can't be sure of right. anything, right? So you can have some facts, but then you have to do interpretation. So, but but the point is that his his whole point is the reason we read fiction, the reason we uh, go to the movies or whatever, or go to the theater, is that we are trying to access a level of truth that doesn't happen through fact and, right. and news, newscasts, right? And that's what keeps us going. And actually, that's what keeps gets people to line up for insane hours and get really excited about a new book or a new film or uh, you know a new record. It's 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 that idea that something is being received that cannot be done through the vehicle of fact. Uh, right. And fact, uh, let's be a little bit careful with fact with the whatever um, we know for, for sure. And we always want to be careful with that because we're living in a world where too many people are mixing everything up and thinking that, that things that can be verified are not verifiable. So we're living kind of in a, in a crazy world that way. But I think with fiction and with allegory, all you're trying to say are, goes back to the idea that there are, are archetypal principles operating on our psyches that enlarge our view of everything and that they're, they're, they're only in my view, told through the vehicle story. That's the only way. It's a little bit like trying to understand modern physics. You're not going to be do it unle- doing it. Uh, you can't do it unless you are able to engage imagination because what mm-hmm. it's describing is something that is just not, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? right? So you're going into things that are that have to be told in a way that are comprehensible and that speak to a different part of the back of your head, like we call it, right? Not, not the, uh, the general way. Thanks for listening. If you like Jay's music and would like to support the creation of more, follow the link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes. You can support my work by buying my new novel, Invocation, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through many booksellers across the world. For now, until next time.
my head. 